From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It might be best to think of Denver International Airport as a never-ending work in progress. While the most disruptive stages of the terminal renovation are over, there are still years of construction to go. And next, finding alternatives to the trains that take you to your gate. We fully recognize that is one of our biggest vulnerabilities in the design of this airport 26 years ago. The airport's new CEO, Phil Washington, is our guest. We'll also talk COVID travel, climate change, and the labor crunch. Then, science shows climate change is real. So how does climate denialism make its way into classrooms? You can't just point to a single campaign or a single figure um, and say, well, that is the reason that some places have terrible or non-existent education on this issue. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Denver International Airport anticipates this will be the year passenger traffic returns to pre-pandemic levels, barring any viral surprises. Phil Washington, the new CEO, will be the one to pilot the airport through any turbulence. He spoke with Ryan Warner about COVID travel and ongoing construction. The city just greenlit a $1.3 billion infusion to finish the Great Hall terminal project. What has the rapid spread of Omicron meant for DIA, from flights to staffing? It's had an impact. Our numbers are down in terms of people traveling. Uh, We have seen that here at Dan, and I think the entire aviation industry has seen that. Uh, But the great part is, and the great story is, that there's a silver lining here. Denver International Airport is the fastest recovering airport in the entire country in terms of large hubs. We're only about 15% down from where we were pre-pandemic. We know that Omicron has been incredibly disruptive to workplaces. And of course, DIA, DEN, as you call it, is a massive workplace. What has it meant for staffing? You know, we have really experienced a lot of shortages. This is not unlike other industries, uh, other airports, or even ground transportation. And so we're working through that. We have had a number of job fairs and they have been successful, but it's tough. And we ask people to come out. If you want a job, need a job, come out to the airport. You mentioned job fairs. Uh, How do you attract and maintain a workforce beyond, I don't know, handing out free yardsticks at a job fair? Well, I think one of the big things, and I'll give an example of shuttle drivers from various parking lots around the airport. I mean, we were requiring commercial driver's licenses uh, for people coming in to operate our shuttles. Uh, What we decided to do was to take that requirement away at entry and after they were hired, then take them through the commercial driver's license training. Hmm. And so that has helped us 
taking away that requirement upon entry. So we'll do things like that to draw folks in. With that billion-dollar investment we mentioned, when can we expect the Great Hall Project to be complete? And, and remind folks briefly what they're going to get when this is all said and done. Well, we are working on the Great Hall really in three phases. Uh, phase one was complete on time, on budget in July. Uh, and that consisted of sort of the middle of the airport. And so if you've come out here recently, you can see United and Southwest in their new areas. We also started phase two, which begins to move security from level five up to level six. And so we are working that piece now. We expect that to open in quarter one of 2024. Now, what we took to the city council was the completion phase. It modernizes uh, ticket areas. It upgrades the entire terminal, comfortable spaces to meet and greet travelers. And it develops uh, a pipeline of aviation talent, something that I'm calling the center of excellence and equity in aviation. And that uh, we think will be finished in the 2027 timeframe. What's different though, is we will open up these components as they finish. So we won't wait till the whole thing is complete. We'll open up as we go. I want to ask you about 2027. That feels far off. I mean, a week these days can feel like a month. But um, uh, why is it important to move security? Well, it's important to remember that this airport was built before 9-11. So we need to cover security, if you will, and not have it as exposed as it is now. And so does that mean that there will be a lot of little security, like checkpoints throughout? No, there won't be a lot of little securities. It will be consolidated in one area and it will be covered as well. Okay, but to this idea of 2027, I mean... Do you share the feeling that many Coloradans have that their airport has been under construction ad infinitum? Yes, I share that sentiment. Uh, But what I say to that is, I mean, when you go around the country, travel has picked up so much and the need to accommodate increased travelers is so prevalent around the country that many of your airports have turned into just large construction sites. Hmm. Uh, You go to places like uh, Los Angeles, LAX has a $14 billion program and has been under construction probably about uh, five to six years. O'Hara has been under construction for probably 15 years now. The great thing that we're doing here, though, is that I don't think the public will notice you know, the construction as much as they did early on Mm. in the project. Mm -hmm. Years ago, your predecessor, Kim Day, talked to me about making the airport a destination for people who aren't traveling or picking someone up. I remember her blue-skying the possibility of a zip line in the Great Hall that might attract people. Do you share that general vision that the airport could be a place to hang out? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I don't, I'm not a fan of a zip line uh, <laughs> in, in the terminal. It's on uh, the, you have it on the record folks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not a big fan of that. Somebody might get hurt. Uh, in, in terms of a destination, I can remember the days and maybe you do too, Ryan, where as a kid, we said we could go out to the airport and watch ta- planes take off. And there was sort of an observation area we want that at the airport. I want that at the airport. We already have skating rinks out here. I can see concerts out here. I can see this place as being a destination. Many European airports uh, are like that, where these are destinations. So I want that, and we're going to work towards that. I don't imagine its location away from the city center is doing it any favors, though. No, but, you know, that's why we... uh, Got the A-line. And of course, I take the train every day out here. So uh, it's easy. And I can see people being able to get on a train to come out here for activities. You talk about 100 million passengers coming through DIA. I am also thinking about all of the fuel that they are burning in so doing. In the face of climate change, should the airport continually be setting and breaking new records uh, I think when we talk about the increased travel, we also talk about the technology and the innovative technology, like sustainable aviation fuel, that is going to reduce the amount of carbon. Uh, we know that transportation is the largest culprit, uh, but I think that we can expand smartly uh, by embracing technology by being sort of the laboratory, we want this airport uh, here in Denver to be the laboratory for aviation in terms of research and technology and trying out new things. And that is not only, you know, aircraft. We're looking at uh, electric vehicles uh, for our ground transportation, shuttle buses, all of those things. We've got solar plants uh, here on the airport. To get between the terminal and the concourses, passengers cram into trains. I guess technically they're buses because they have tires. Anywho, there's no real redundancy if they fail. I believe you've put a call out for proposals. What what sorts of options do you imagine to get people closer to their plane? We fully recognize that that is one of our biggest vulnerabilities in the design of this airport 26 years ago. Now, the good thing is that we have a lot of new trains coming uh, in the next uh, 12 months or so, 12 to 18 months. And that is that more, is more be, trains on the current route. That's correct. Yeah, uh-huh. But yes, I wanted to put out what we call a request for information to the private sector to provide us ideas for redundancy uh, for this existing train system. And so we are reviewing these things. I will say that the private sector responded unbelievably with great ideas. I can't wait to look at them. Yeah, I'm so tempted to find out what they are. But I guess you don't know yet. Okay, they're, cl- they're, I, they're clearly not going to be zip lines. They're not going to be zip lines because I think uh, to try to do a zip line with some <laughs> luggage would be uh, pretty tough. In many industries, there are conversations going on around systemic racism and equity. What what do those conversations 
if they're happening, sound like in the realm of big U.S. airports, Phil? Well, in my mind, uh, it means really understanding and emphasizing that we need a diverse team and we need to make sure that we look to increase uh, minority prime contracts, not always subcontracting, but awarding prime contracts to uh, historically underutilized businesses. We have developed sort of a, what I call a rapid equity assessment that asks six questions and takes a look at the programs or projects that we are proposing and ask questions like, how does it impact minority communities? So we have been very, very uh, aggressive in our approach to equity. And it also means to put equity uh, in performance appraisals for our leadership. Before we go, when was the last time you traveled through the airport as a passenger and what stood out to you? The last time was last week, Okay, uh, actually. You know, we have uh, an app on our phones where we can report various things that we see in the airport. And, and I think my folks get tired of me using that app. What did you use uh, it for? I used it because a moving sidewalk was out. and Like uh, one of those flat escalators. Correct. And, you know, I walk through the airport every single day. And, you know, it helps me. Uh, the fact that I take the A-line out here, you know, allows me to walk the length of the terminal every single day. So I'm looking at security. I'm looking at the cleanliness. I'm looking at bathrooms. Uh, we're going to put customer service teams out on the concourses. That will be their place of duty to report things in real time. So I am always uh, reporting things. We want to make sure that we enhance the customer experience. And I think uh, that our passengers will see that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ryan. Ryan Warner, speaking with Phil Washington, the new CEO of Denver International Airport. If his name sounds familiar, he used to run RTD. When we come back, how is the science of climate change being taught in schools, or is it even being taught at all? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The latest data from NASA says the world is continuing to warm. Last year was tied for the sixth warmest on record, and the second half of 2021 was the warmest in Colorado's history. While global warming is widely considered to be settled science, award-winning journalist Katie Wirth says some schools across the country continue to teach climate change as unsettled science, or sometimes don't teach it at all. Her new book, Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America, is out now and explores the ways climate denialism makes its way into classrooms. Katie, welcome to Colorado Matters. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You're an investigative journalist, and you were with Frontline, the PBS documentary series, when you went to the Marshall Islands for a story. Now, these islands are in the Pacific between Hawaii and the Philippines. And when you spoke to students there, you found that they could really speak fluently about climate change. Tell us about that experience. Why do these kids know so much? We were wondering the same thing. There was some variety in how much they knew, but one kid in particular had been learning it in school every single year since he was six. 
and he and his classmates could tell us, you know, what the cause was, what it might mean for the world, what it might mean for them personally, which is, of course, more than a lot of adults can say. The Marshall Islands is one of a handful of nations whose very existence is threatened by climate change. Um, The most notable physical feature of these islands is that they're very low lying. So uh, the highest points on the island might be 12 feet above sea level or 15 feet above sea level. And so you can imagine that just even a foot or two of sea level rise can really drastically impact the island. And it already has. The scientists we spoke to expect that probably within the century, the folks who live there are going to have to make some hard decisions about being there. The leadership of the Marshall Islands have taken a leadership role in the UN and You know, the adults in the Marshall Islands know a lot about climate change just because it's so relevant to their life. It's it's a place that, you know, at this point, climate change is not hypothetic or futuristic for anyone, but it was very present earlier for the Marshallese than it has been for lots of people on this planet. And so I think just as a product of having the adults on that island be very invested in understanding and um, and taking action on climate change, the kids are too. In your book, you tell this story about a nine-year-old boy who lives on the islands and has a solid understanding of the climate and climate change. And you highlight that his family is looking to move to Oklahoma. Can you describe for us why you use the story and what you found out about how educators teach climate change in Oklahoma as opposed to what the boy is taught in the Marshall Islands? I went to the town that his family was considering moving, which is Enid, Oklahoma. And I went to their high school and I spoke to five kids who all belong to the school's Islander Club, whose families all hailed from the Marshall Islands. And of those five, four told me that I was the first adult to ever utter the words climate change to them on school grounds. So that just tells you that climate change is not a central part of education in Oklahoma in the same way that it was in the Marshall Islands. And we should note in the book, you do talk about essentially a pipeline between the Marshall Islands and this Oklahoma town that we're not going to really get into, but it is interesting <laughs> that there is a link between that town in Oklahoma and the Marshall Islands. So uh, yes. I want to talk about Oklahoma standards um, because they do seem different than what the child would learn on the Marshall Islands. Can, can you talk about um, how states are actually graded on their education standards that when addressing climate change, since um, I understand that teaching standards for climate change vary greatly from state to state, right? In this country, we don't have a nationwide curriculum. The federal government leaves it up to states to figure out what they're going to teach kids about every subject, pretty much. So every state then has science standards, and they vary quite a lot when it comes to how they treat climate change. So in some states, climate change is all over the science standards. So kids will learn it in middle school. They'll learn it in biology, in high school, in chemistry, in earth science, and also in civics classes. In Hawaii, they might learn it in a math class. And in New Jersey, they might learn it in physical education So, you know, like some states really are pretty aggressive about educating kids on this topic, and other states have either 
totally excised the subject of modern climate science from their science standards, or they actually teach it as um, they teach, you know, climate denial talking points to children. In Oklahoma, at the time that I visited, it was just totally absent from the from the standards. Although just in the last year, they adopted new standards that speak about it in a limited way in middle school science. What about Colorado? If if we're grading states on how their education standards addressing climate change are, are, are graded. Where does Colorado sit? There was a panel of experts that was convened by the National Center for Science Education and then a group called the Texas Freedom Network that graded every single state's standards um, based on how well they communicated that climate change is real, that it's uh, caused by humans, that it it's going to have some effects and what some of those effects are, and then that there's some hope, that they're like talking a little bit about the solutions that are in place. And then they turned all of those ratings into letter grades. Colorado at that time received an A minus. This was in 2019. So Colorado does does better than average in their science standards when it comes to uh, teaching climate. You visited your old junior high school in California, and you write about it in this book. And and you met a science teacher there who does teach about global warming and climate change. And she shared a story with you about a project that usually got her kids really excited to learn about climate change. But but one year they seemed uninterested at all in learning about it. What, what was going on there specifically? Well, so this teacher every year taught the science of climate change and then had her students work on solutions projects. And they loved this. They loved kind of inventing, innovating, thinking up solutions. The education experts that I spoke to said that that kind of thing is really important that you that you have to talk to kids about hope, you know, that you can't just give them all the doom and gloom, but also like let them know that there are solutions, that they can be part of them, that we need their help. We need them to roll up their sleeves and help us with this problem. So every year, this teacher at Chico Junior High, my alma mater, did these solution projects for the last few weeks of the semester, and her kids always loved it. And as you said, one year, um, they just started coming in and saying, well, why are we learning about this? This is dumb. And she got to the bottom of it and realized that her students were leaving her class and walking down the hall to history class where they, the teacher was showing them YouTube videos from a climate denial organization that allege that climate change isn't happening, that it's not human caused, that it's all a hoax by scientists to gain power. <laughs> and um, and so they were getting these really mixed messages in two different classes in the same school. Why were those videos being shown in, in, in that class as opposed to a science class? It seems like one doesn't connect. It, w- was there a reason for that? Well, you know, the teacher confronted the history teacher and asked just that. She said, you know, like these kids are 11 and we just have to be really careful when one teacher is talking to them about something and then another teacher that they trust is saying like, oh, don't worry about that. That's not real. And he said, well, I just want them to know both sides. Um, And, you know, while that on the very surface sounds reasonable, (laughs) what we know is that there aren't both sides when we're talking about the science of climate change. There's plenty of sides when you're talking about what to do about climate change, but there's no actual scientific debate about what's causing it, you know, because there's just no evidence of anything other than human cause. And and you discuss that quite a bit in your book about 
how the science is effectively settled. Humans are causing climate change. Can you talk about that, how how within schools, teachers who kids need to be trusting will, will teach them about things may not themselves understand fully what's going on with climate change? You know, first, it's important to understand that the, that climate skepticism, climate denial didn't arise spontaneously, naturally. Um, it arose because there was a really concerted campaign to make the American public doubt the climate science. And that we know a lot about that because of some excellent investigative journalism that's happened in recent years. We know that the fossil fuel industry, coal companies, Exxon and their allies, the American Petroleum Institute, have worked to push doubt about climate change, even as their own scientists had long since come to the conclusion that it was real and that their industry was contributing to it. They were really successful and, in fact, created a world in which one party in our two-party system is um, pretty attached to this ideology that is skeptical of the science. Because, you know, the truth is that if we're going to forestall the worst outcomes of climate change, we're going to have to leave some fossil fuels in the ground. And that's a matter of trillions of dollars to the fossil fuel industry. And they would like to forestall regulation and environmental policy as long as they can. So that's trickled down to people on the ground, you know, who don't necessarily know that history and kind of have absorbed and trusted the messages that they've received through the media, through their politicians, through, you know, even uh, mainstream media kind of perpetrated that message for a long time. And we haven't quite gotten to a world where the science is completely accepted. Going back to the grades that each state had when talking about education and climate change, you took those grades that each state got and, and you found a pattern of a political red-blue divide when it came to those grades. Tell, tell us what you found based on, on what we were just talking about. We made a red-blue-purple map based on who controlled a state legislature because these state standards, they're developed by, you know, educators, but then they have to get kind of a thumbs up from a state legislature in most cases. And what we found was every blue state got at least a B-plus on their state standards. There wasn't a single blue state that got less than a B plus. And the red states were very much more all over the map. So, you know, a few got A's, but far more got C's, D's, and F's. And so, you know, what that means is that you can kind of like roughly predict what a kid might learn about this phenomenon that will affect their life based on knowing what political party runs their state legislature. And, you know, the problem with that is that, of course, climate change isn't going to, like, check into the state legislature before causing a crisis in your state. You know, it's going to affect people in all states. But, you know, the truth about the matter, information about that phenomenon, preparation for the future becomes the purview of kids who happen to live in blue states. Are you making this connection in the book between, you know, moneyed interests, let's say the petroleum industry or things like that, in, in perpetuating this red-blue state divide, or, or is it not that clear? It's murky. You know, you can't just 
point to a single campaign or a single figure um, and say, well, that is the reason that, you know, some places have terrible or non-existent education on this issue. It's a matter of like state and local politics, investments by fossil fuel companies, right-wing media machines, a lack of courage by textbook companies, some ignorant teachers, etc. But yes, fossil fuel companies have absolutely tried to get their messages in front of school kids, and they have had a lot of success, especially in red states, and especially in red states that have a pretty big oil and, and gas industry. Because I'm thinking, you know, of Colorado, we have a very large industry, um, but yet you're saying in Colorado, the state has received a B plus, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly... Um, a one-to-one <laughs> correlation, you know, like there, there are certainly some red and purple states um, that, that do pretty well on this issue, but also what's in the state standards doesn't necessarily, isn't the only factor involved in what kids are going to learn. So, you know, there's these organizations that operate on a state level that push fossil fuel messages in front of kids you know, and have for a really long time. So, you know, like I was sitting in a classroom in Arkansas when a representative of the state oil and gas industry association walked in and she had a PowerPoint presentation for the students there. And this is her whole job to go classroom to classroom and give this PowerPoint presentation. And it's, you know, a little bit about the geology of the state and the technology used to extract oil things that kids you know should know but then there's a whole section um, that pretty intentionally downplays climate change and tells the students like oh this is not something you really need to worry about it's not a big problem every source of fuel has problems you actually uh, gave us a clip of a powerpoint that 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 person gave to those seventh graders but it's not just us what we do matters but what everybody else does matters too if the United States went, to, if we shut down all fossil fuel usage tomorrow, all of them, the difference it would make in terms of global warming is 0.01%. This problem, these problems are not going to be solved by one country. They're, it's going to take everybody working. Uh, what part of this clip isn't true? Well, it's not true that the effect, if the U.S. shut down all fossil fuel production, would be 0.1%. That is just false. It's just false. And I asked her I asked her about it later as I was fact-checking my book, and she's like, well, I, I don't know. I, th- I thought that was true, and I don't remember saying that. <laughs> but she did. She de- said it on tape, as you can hear. And, you know, so if you're a kid sitting in that class, you're going to be like, Next time you hear about climate change, you're going to be like, well, America doesn't really have a role in fixing this anyway. And that's just not true. I mean, America is historically the biggest emitter of carbon on the planet and continues to be number two emitter on the planet. And there's a lot we can do to slow climate change if we if we wanted to. I keep thinking back to when I was in school and the textbook. I mean, the textbook was it. The textbook was the answer. Any questions, it was in the textbook. And I I, I read in the book that, that you found that some of the most popular textbooks introduced kids to alternative theories around climate change without any evidence to back them up, meaning the textbook in some cases was not the be-all, end-all, right? 
Yes, I reviewed all of the most popular middle school science textbooks in the country. And I looked at middle school textbooks especially because uh, that's the last time that kids will actually get much education in earth science unless they happen to take an earth science class in high school, which we know they most don't. Only about 5% of high schoolers a year do. Middle school science uh, textbooks usually do have some legitimate information about climate change and they'll talk about, you know, like what what's happening, um, you know, the greenhouse effect, how we're magnifying the greenhouse effect. Uh, but then they'll include lines, um, caveats like, you know, well, while many scientists agree that humans are causing climate change, some believe that it's natural. And then they'll launch into a paragraph about like, alternative theories like solar cycles for which there is literally not a scrap of evidence but it's in there it's in the textbook and you know as you point out you know like textbooks are this authoritative source and you know we don't going through school they're important we don't imagine that they're telling us lies so essentially saying that there is still debate to be had over climate change, and scientists are still debating this. Is, is that, in essence, what these textbooks are saying in American classrooms? Yeah, that's what they're saying. And I mean, as I, as I said before, there is plenty of debate to be had over like what to do, if anything, about this problem. But you know, scientists do not debate what is warming the atmosphere. The the science is actually pretty simple, even though the models are complicated. But you know, and there's a lot of like details we still have to work out. But we're pumping atmosphere warming gases into the atmosphere um, on the scale of, you know, 4 billion uh, tons of it per year. And like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if you pump enough atmosphere warming gas into the atmosphere, it's going to warm. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And it's been what's been predicted for for a century. And um, the models have all been basically correct over that time. And we're seeing it. So, so what do the textbook makers say? I sought out the folks who wrote and edited these textbooks. And what I heard was that textbook makers, you know, it's a business and they're concerned with selling books. And they know that um, when it comes to adopting uh, and purchasing textbooks, some states take a really close political look at these textbooks. And so what they're doing, you know, they have explicit conversations like, well, we can say this much about climate change, but we can't say that because that's just going too far. You know, as one former textbook editor told me, no one says, well, we can't include environmental science because of Texas, but everybody in the industry knows that you can't include environmental science because of Texas. Um, Texas being one of the largest textbook purchasers in the nation and um, therefore having a disproportionate impact on what's in textbooks. It it seems through all of this that there are are, are so many points of friction around teaching climate change where, where, you know, teachers who disagree over whether to teach or not, parents who get upset if their kids are taught it or not. Kids want to learn but but aren't taught. And and some kids reject the idea because of what they learn at home. You quoted one teacher who said, I can't tell a kid that their parents are wrong, but studies have found that kids who are taught climate science in school can actually impact their parents' thinking, right? So it's not just the teachers and the textbooks, it's the parents as well that, that there is this friction over climate change. 
if the most important people in a kid's life are telling the kid, well, like, that's a hoax, you know, um, they're going to believe that. <laughs> and, you know, more than they believe their teacher. Um, but we do know that if kids do get a good education about it, then they care about this issue. And if they're getting even neutral messages at home, they'll come home and talk about it over the dinner table. And there's studies that show that when they do, their parents get more concerned about climate change. This kind of intergenerational effect is especially strong in conservative families and especially strong with little girls and their fathers. <laughs> Kids, you know, do get these messages, not just in school. It doesn't matter. It, you know, school is just one source of information. They're hearing about this issue from their families, from their churches, from their uh, from, you know, their phones, from the media, and they're absorbing all of that information. But what happens in school is still important because, you know, it's an institution that touches nearly every kid in this country. And so understanding what's happening in schools is important. So what's what's the takeaway here? I mean, what can be done? Uh, I mean, it's a huge problem, it sounds like. I mean, is it changing local school standards on teaching climate change? Or, or is it a national mandate on climate change? Or is this something that parents you know, must do on their own with their kids, engaging them more in climate change outside of school? Yeah, you know, um, that's a good question. And one I'm getting a lot, I think that there are a lot of ways to tackle this problem. One is, you know, on a very, very local level, uh, just paying attention to what's happening in your community schools on this issue, paying attention to what's in science standards and kind of who and where, what that process it, adoption process is like and who's influencing it. You know, there are some efforts, a group called uh, Schools for Climate Education um, is working with Representative Barbara Lee in California to push a congressional resolution on teaching climate. You know, so there's kind of all, all kinds of ways to address this problem. Ultimately, it just needs to be something that we understand is happening. It's, it's important and we have to decide that it's important to teach kids about this, to kind of arm kids with information about, about this phenomenon that will shape their lives. Katie, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Katie Wirth is an award-winning investigative reporter. Her new book, Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America, explores the ways climate denialism makes its way into classrooms. <laughs> Scientists are also exploring how climate change may have played a role in the Marshall Fire, which destroyed more than a thousand homes and buildings in Boulder County last month. Those buildings were made from plastic, metal, and fiberglass. Yet beyond climate change, all the synthetic ashes the blaze left behind have people worried. As CPR's Sam Brash reports, scientists are racing to find out if there's now a lingering threat to air quality. Hello, we're here to look at the air quality. Thank you. It's one of those crystal clear Colorado mornings when Karsten Warnicke and I drive into a devastated neighborhood in Louisville. He's a research scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And this van, it's packed with equipment to identify what's that strange smell filling our nostrils. It smells like the day after a campfire, right? It might be having some electrical smell in it as well, in addition to a regular campfire. This work is part of a scramble to understand the air quality in the burn area. 
The Marshall Fire vaporized homes in heavily populated suburbs, not trees in some remote forest. That means people are already living near potentially toxic ashes. Local, state, and federal scientists all want to know if that's safe. There's no research or any data available on smells from neighborhoods that have just burned. So that there's nothing known about but what we'll see once, once we drive into this neighborhood, basically. He inches the van past empty foundations and blackened basketball hoops. Lines dance on a computer monitor in the passenger seat, each one measuring a different pollutant. Looking at the concentrations that we see running on the screen here, I wouldn't be too worried at this point. But as I said, we haven't analyzed the data in, in all that detail. Even if the air isn't bad today, there could still be a long-term threat. Snow covers the ashes now. When it dries out, the remains could loft into the wind. It could also be kicked up by construction crews. While they learn more, public health officials say people should wear masks, especially if they have respiratory conditions. That's advice many residents are taking to heart. At a cul-de-sac, we see a guy sorting through the ashes. His name is Eric Ruggles. The 24-year-old geologist is looking for his childhood rock collection in what's left of his parents' house. Fossil that survived, too. It's crazy, some of the things that survive and some of the things that get completely destroyed. Ruggles wears thick gloves and a high-end P95 mask. It helps, but he says he can't work long before the smell starts to get to him. Last week, very fresh after the fires, there were still some smoldering spots within our house. You know, you were in there for 10 minutes, and by the time you left, you had a headache and your lungs felt like crap. So the biggest thing is just getting in here, spending a short period of time, as short as possible, and then getting out. He's planning to make quick trips until scientists learn more. That's probably a smart precaution, but it's a lot trickier for residents trying to move back into a damaged home. So one thing to note, as we're standing behind the front door, there's a lot of ash. Uh, and soot piled up. This is Yost Gao. He's a chemist and air pollution expert at the University of Colorado Boulder. Since the fire, he's led a project to study a home that survived but was smothered in smoke. The home acted like a sponge and it really absorbed a lot of those gases. And that's why we're still smelling things in here because it's slowly being released from, from the walls, from the furniture, from the curtains, from the carpet from a lot of other materials that, that you have in, in, a, in, a, in a modern home. Already, the instruments have picked up elevated levels of benzene, a known carcinogen. The plan is to measure the effectiveness of recommended fixes, like professional cleanings and new air filters. To get some idea of uh, what people are exposed to and what they can do to protect themselves, right? Noah Abrams, the homeowner, says that gives him some peace of mind. We're going to know whether it's safe or not during the cleanup and after the cleanup. Abrams is confident the indoor air will improve. At this point, he's more worried about the incinerated areas just outside his front door. Weeks after the fire, they still carry that same unsettling odor. And then I'm worried when other people go and they dig out or they're, they're cleaning up or just uh, disrupting the area that, that a lot of that soot is going to get back up into the air. His family is now staying in a Boulder hotel. It's not the most comfortable, but until scientists get a clearer grasp of the air quality threat and how it could change, he's in no rush to go home. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. When we come back, using music to overcome addiction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. On the Southern Ute Reservation, many families don't have running water or even wells and have to drive miles to fill water tanks. A few times it didn't last for that week. Tribal nations had no say in the distribution of Colorado River water when it was divvied up a century ago. 
the tribes have been promised a say in the river's future. There's more demand than ever for the river's dwindling water. Will tribes get what they need? Read the story and see lots of pictures at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Drug deaths continue to rise across the country, and Colorado has been no exception. Overdose deaths statewide have doubled this past decade, driven by the introduction of fentanyl into the state's drug supply. But on a farm near Fort Collins, there's hope, powered by music. Denverite's Esteban Hernandez shares how one family turned grief into action. Tyler Michael Creed is playing a drum set inside the music room at Harvest Farm. It's a rehabilitation center for men run by Denver Rescue Mission. We couldn't be further from Denver, though. This farm sits on the outskirts of Wellington, a town northeast of Fort Collins. And I can't read music or nothing like that, but I could pick up a bass or a guitar and just, you know, let my soul speak. And just, it's good therapy. It's really good therapy. So. Creed says he's been sober for three months. The room had several other instruments, including a keyboard and guitars, donated by a nonprofit called KK Fearless. It was founded by Brooke Perez in memory of her late siblings, Kevin and Crystal. Its mission is to provide musical instruments for people in recovery like Creed. Harvest Farms received the nonprofit's first ever drop-off in October. The nonprofit also donated more than $3,000, which the rehabilitation center used to buy more instruments like guitars and tuning equipment. Perez couldn't stop smiling the day she helped unload the music equipment. She was giddy. She couldn't wait to post the news on the nonprofit's Facebook page. Oh my gosh, I know. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to... Well, I hope they play some of it, but I'm excited to still set it up. I don't think we're quite done yet, but... Perez's composure obscures her personal sorrow. Her brother and sister both had drug addiction. Both died from drug-related deaths. Crystal died from an overdose involving fentanyl and heroin in 2017. Kevin died by suicide while in a sober living home last year. This was just kind of like out of nowhere, uh, and I think it was just a mixture of his medication plus the inhalants that he was abusing. Fatal drug overdoses in Colorado have been rising consistently since 2010. This is part of a national trend that hit a sobering milestone last year. More than 93,000 people, nearly the combined capacity of Ball Arena and Empower Field in Denver, died from overdoses across the country. Perez's brother and sister were both musically talented. She says they were the kind of people everyone loved being around. After some brainstorming, Perez decided music would be the center of the nonprofit's effort. Crystal and Kevin were, we were all a year apart in age, so we grew up very close. Um, they both were super talented. They had um, a knack for music, and I did not. In some ways, the nonprofit sprouted out of frustration. A statewide survey from last year found stigma and costs were among the reasons people didn't get alcohol or drug use treatment. Perez hopes the nonprofit helps remove that stigma by making people more comfortable seeing addiction as a disease that requires treatment like any other. At the time, it was like, I don't want her to just be a number. I don't want her to be a statistic. We need to figure something out and make sure this stops happening. Her sister's death motivated her to take some action, though she wasn't entirely sure what at first. She landed on providing musical instruments in places where people seek out treatment. Research suggests that patients, particularly adolescents, are more engaged with therapy and treatment plans when those include music therapy. Several small studies have indicated that music therapy can boost patients' moods, help them experience positive emotions without turning into substances, and alleviate feelings of stress, anger, and depression. Before the donation, Harvest Farms Music Room only had a drum set and a $100 acoustic guitar. 
Tyler Zeller is the center's program supervisor. So with all this new stuff that they gave us for the drum set, new snare, new cymbals, some stands, uh, it's going to be able to totally redo the whole drum set. It's enough equipment for Harvest Farm members to form a band. Yeah, totally. We got PA systems now. We got uh, we got amplifiers. We got microphones. So we have it all for sure. Creed stomped away at the drum set, hitting the hi-hats and the snare drum for a bit, running through a short drum fill before calling it quits. He says playing music helps him deal with his anger. For me, I never knew a place like this existed, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it, and um, I really want to stay alive. So that's what Creed plans on doing, living day by day as best he can. I'm Esteban Hernandez, Denverite. We'll see you next week. <laughs> CPR data reporter Veronica Penny contributed to Esteban's story. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with a very big thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. Our theme was written and produced by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder, and we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters, or of course, send us an email to coloradomatters at cpr.org. We know it's not possible to listen every day, so be sure to tune in Sunday mornings at 10 for best of segments from the week. You can also catch Colorado Matters anytime with our podcast at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts, and online at CPR.org. And of course, you can always get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.